there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Yale University's Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library holds over 100,000 priceless books and historical documents. The six-story structure is, according to the library's website, home to one of the largest and most dynamic collections of rare books and manuscripts in the world. You would think that the collection's prized item would be the Gutenberg Bible from around 1454. The Bible is famously one of the West's first printed works. But a different text in the stacks has proven to be one of the collection's biggest draws, item MS-408. The Voynich Manuscript. Over 200 vellum pages contain scrawling, draconic writing, and color illustrations. It is called Beinecke Library its home for over 50 years. And in that time, no one has managed to decode the manuscript. They don't even know who wrote it. Is the Voynich Manuscript a catalog of long-forgotten scientific knowledge? Do the encrypted pages contain secrets to understanding our world or even our universe. Or is it possible that the Voynich Manuscript is a 500-year-old hoax specifically designed to baffle linguists and codebreakers alike? Is the secret of the Voynich Manuscript simply that there is no secret? Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there is so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on the Voynich Manuscript. 
This centuries-old tome was discovered in 1912 by antique book dealer Wilfred Voynich. The manuscript became famous for its bizarre, indecipherable writing system. Last week, we discussed the modern history of the Voynich manuscript from its discovery in 1912 to its donation to the Beinecke Library of Rare Books and Manuscripts in 1969. This week, we're going to unpack the most popular theory regarding the manuscript's authorship, that it was written by 13th century philosopher and friar Roger Bacon. Then, we'll look at the timeline of the manuscript's suspected ownership during the Middle Ages. We'll consider how and why it disappeared prior to its rediscovery in 1912. We'll also try to determine whether or not the Voynich manuscript is one big hoax. In our last episode, we introduced the confounding Voynich manuscript. The document is comprised of over 240 vellum pages of bizarre writing and strange illustrations of plants, trees, star charts, people, and more. The writing is aligned to the left margin, which traditionally implies a European influence on the language. However, the usage patterns in the Voynich manuscript defy the traditional code-breaking techniques applied to Western languages. There are no words fewer than two characters, nor any longer than ten. There's also no discernible punctuation marking where sentences begin and end. The illustrations are their own mystery. The plants depicted in the Voynich manuscript don't resemble any known botanical specimens on planet Earth. From start to finish, the book is confounding. And despite multiple attempts by different teams of codebreakers and scholars, no one has been able to provide any definitive answers about the Voynich manuscript. The first widely publicized study was conducted in the mid-1920s by William Romain Newbold. His findings were published posthumously in 1928 under the title The Cipher of Roger Bacon. While Newbold is often credited with connecting Roger Bacon to the manuscript, it is likely that he was fed Bacon's name by someone else, Wilfred Voynich. When the Voynich manuscript was first exhibited to the public in 1915, it was presented as an unsolved cipher manuscript by Roger Bacon, 13th century. So it seems likely that Newbold's subsequent research was influenced by what he already suspected, that it was written by Roger Bacon. Newbold also claimed he'd cracked the code of the Voynich manuscript, but his decoding method was incredibly dense and long-winded. Looking at his writing today, his theory seems like a series of reckless leaps in logic made so that he could back up his predetermined conclusion. Newbold's work was discredited in 1931 by philologist John Matthews Manley. Ever since then, the connection between the Voynich manuscript and Roger Bacon has been accepted by historians with a hefty grain of salt. Newbold's finding on the Voynich manuscript were discredited largely because of the leaps in logic in his attempted decoding. But what if he was right about the connection to Roger Bacon and it was just his methodology that was off? 
Roger Bacon lived from roughly 1220 to 1292 CE. Over the course of his life, he made extensive contributions to the fields of mathematics, astronomy, linguistics, and alchemy. Among his many accolades are the recipe for gunpowder. The substance had previously only existed in China, and Bacon's research helped introduce it to Europe. In his work, Opus Maius, Bacon described a device that used reflective lenses to enhance eyesight. This is among the first known written references to eyeglasses. As a linguist, Bacon employed a practical education. Whereas his contemporaries studied the cultural importance of foreign languages, Bacon believed in a more hands-on application. He could read, write, and speak in many languages. He published alchemical studies about metals, their origins, and their qualities. He also wrote hypotheses about the potential existence of a philosopher's stone. Alchemy was highly controversial at the time, as many officials in the church viewed it as tantamount to sorcery or black magic. Bacon made it one of his life's missions to showcase how alchemy worked as a purely scientific endeavor with no occult connotations. Later in life, Bacon joined the Catholic Church as a friar. Even then, he continued his scientific pursuits. Bacon believed that academic understanding of geology, biology, and astrology helped us better understand ourselves and the natural world. Therefore, this study brought us closer to God. Bacon's resume is vital when regarding his possible connection to the Voynich Manuscript. One, Bacon was well-versed in a number of subjects. He could have written at length about any of them. This is important to note because the Voynich Manuscript has long been suspected as being some kind of instructional text. Two, Bacon was a linguist. He spoke numerous languages, including Greek and Hebrew, and likely had the mental capacity to translate and transcribe at a fast pace. Bacon had knowledge of astronomy and alchemy, both of which would seem to be relevant to the Voynich manuscript based on the illustrations that are included within it. And as a linguist, it's not a stretch to assume that Roger Bacon could have devised a bizarre code or even his own language in which to write out his manuscript. Only he or those he trusted would have been able to translate it. But just because Roger Bacon could have written the Voynich manuscript doesn't mean that he did. Ability does not equal intent. In this case, knowing what we do about Roger Bacon, we are still left with a question. Why would Bacon want to write a manuscript like this? During his lifetime and centuries after his death, Roger Bacon was associated with secret or forbidden knowledge. Alchemy, in particular, was a field of much suspicion and doubt among the more religious-minded Europeans of the 13th century. Many alchemists were compared to wizards. Adding literal flame to the fire was Bacon's association with a device known as a brazen head. A brazen head, or a necromantic head, was an automated mechanical sculpture made of brass or bronze. According to some accounts, it was something akin to a man-made genie, which, when built correctly, 
could correctly answer yes or no questions. In some interpretations, the head is possessed by an evil spirit. Brazen heads are associated with dark, forbidden, or twisted magic. Now, as a side note, it's not at all confirmed whether Roger Bacon actually built such a device. Rather, the 16th century play Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay featured a fictionalized Roger Bacon who built a magical brazen head. But it's still assumed that Roger Bacon experimented with necromancy and other forms of unexplainable magic. Therefore, he may have had some kind of secret or arcane knowledge that he wanted to hide behind a cipher. Perhaps he chronicled it in the document that we know today as the Voynich Manuscript. This seems like a lot of conjecture. And we haven't even mentioned the real nail in the coffin of the Roger Bacon authorship theory. In 2009, 40 years after it was first donated to Yale University, the Voynich Manuscript underwent carbon dating. Dr. Gregory Hodgins oversaw a team at the University of Arizona to determine a suspected age of the mysterious document. Radiocarbon dating is a process by which matter that contains organic material is dated with a carbon isotope. Recall that the Voynich manuscript is written on vellum, a form of medieval paper made from calf skin or membrane. When all was said and done, the team had a 95% certainty that the pages were between 571 and 605 years old. That means it was likely written between 1404 and 1438 CE. That's over 100 years after Roger Bacon died in 1292. Now this is a relatively new development in the saga of the Voynich Manuscript. Given the lack of this kind of technology in the 1920s, it does make sense why people like Newbold would connect the bizarre manuscript to someone like Roger Bacon. It seems likely that Wilfred Voynich somehow got fixated on the idea of Roger Bacon being connected to his manuscript and just couldn't get the thought out of his head. Then he passed that notion on to Newbold, who cemented the idea with his publication, The Cipher of Roger Bacon. But this begs a new question entirely. If Roger Bacon didn't write the Voynich manuscript, who did? Next, we'll consider the historical clues and try to track the manuscript's history from the 1400s to the early 20th century. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. Since it was unveiled in the 1910s, the Voynich Manuscript was associated with philosopher and linguist Roger Bacon. 
However, carbon dating performed in 2009 proved that the 600-year-old tome was likely written over a century after Bacon's death. However, even if Bacon wasn't involved, there is still much we can surmise of the manuscript's suspected history. With the information and technology he had during his lifetime, Wilfred Voynich would have had no way to determine the exact date of the manuscript's creation. But one still wonders where he got the idea of Bacon's authorship in the first place. Well, now we have an answer. When Wilfred first purchased the manuscript, he found a letter written in Latin tucked away between the pages. It read, Reverend and distinguished sir, father in Christ, this book bequeathed to me by an intimate friend, I destined for you, my very dear Athanasius, as soon as it came into my possession, for I was convinced it could be read by no one except yourself. The former owner of this book once asked your opinion by letter. Accept now this token. Dr. Raphael, tutor in the Bohemian language to Ferdinand III, then King of Bohemia, told me the said book had belonged to the Emperor Rudolf and that he presented the bearer who brought him the book 600 ducats. He believed the author was Roger Bacon, the Englishman. On this point, I suspend judgment at the command of your reverence, Johannes Marcus Marcy, Prague, 19th of August, 1665. This letter implies that at some point in the late 16th or early 17th century, the Voynich manuscript was owned by Emperor Rudolf II. Rudolf II, born in 1552, served as King of Bohemia, King of Hungary, Archduke of Austria, and the Holy Roman Emperor over the course of his life. He's now regarded with some level of controversy. Some blame his poor rule for the Thirty Years' War that racked Europe during the early 17th century. Others credit him with supporting scientific advancement and learning that eventually gave way to the scientific revolution. It's the latter association that makes Rudolf a viable candidate for ownership of the Voynich manuscript. It's likely that during the Middle Ages, the document was seen as some kind of encrypted scientific treatise. This letter also seems to be the genesis of the Roger Bacon authorship theory, and so we can assume that Wilfred Voynich read this letter, assumed that Rudolf II knew what he was talking about, and thus spent the rest of his life trying to prove that the old emperor's assumption was correct. The message, if legitimate, makes Rudolf II the first confirmed historical owner of the Voynich manuscript, and more, it establishes a paper trail that we can try to unravel to learn more about the document's history. If this letter speaks the truth, then Rudolf II had to have purchased the Voynich manuscript from somebody, and he also clearly had to have bequeathed it to someone after his death. So first, let's try to determine where Rudolf II got the manuscript from. The message that Voynich found indicated that Rudolf purchased the book for 600 ducats, which would amount to a little less than $100,000 today. Wilfred Voynich proposed in 1921 that alchemist John Dee sold the manuscript to Rudolf II. Dee was a Welsh philosopher and mathematician who lived at the same time as Rudolf. 
He was known to collect works that were written by or associated with Roger Bacon. Given that Voynich was convinced Bacon had written the manuscript, it tracks that he would assume John Dee had the document at some point before selling it to Rudolph. The next question is who received the manuscript after Rudolph passed away in 1612? Let's consider the author of this letter, Johannes Marcus Marcy. Marcy was a doctor from Bohemia, or modern-day Czech Republic, who served as the royal physician to the Holy Roman Emperors in the early to mid-17th century. Marcy was only 17 in 1612 when Rudolf II died, so it's unlikely he ever worked directly for the man. But he came into possession of the Voynich manuscript at some point in the decades after Rudolf II's death. Johannes Marcus Marcy was a renowned doctor and scientist during his lifetime. Like Roger Bacon, he devoted a good amount of effort to the study of optics and even predated Sir Isaac Newton in proposing the theory that color was a result of modified light. All this is to say that Marcy was an incredibly intelligent and famed scientist. He studied the fields of science that many suspect the Voynich manuscript addresses. And yet, there's no record of Marcy ever trying to decipher the text himself. It is possible that he simply didn't log his attempts so as not to immortalize his failures. All we know about Marcy's relationship to the manuscript is that in 1665, he passed it off to his friend and colleague, Athanasius Kircher. Kircher was a renowned Jesuit scholar who, like Roger Bacon and Marcy, was a polymath and expert in a number of scientific, historical, and literary fields. Among those specialties was linguistics. Kircher was the ideal choice for Marcy to send the Voynich manuscript to. His extensive knowledge of current and old languages made him one of the most skilled translators and code crackers of his time. If anyone in the 17th century could figure out what the Voynich manuscript actually said, it was Kircher. But when he died in 1680, the manuscript remained unsolved. It then, presumably, remained among Kircher's other writings and texts at the Collegio Romano and stayed there after he died. After that, we lose the thread of where the Voynich manuscript went until it reappeared in 1912 at Villa Mondragone. There are some holes in the timeline that link the manuscript through the people we just listed. According to Voynich, when he first recovered the Voynich manuscript from Italy, he discovered a faint signature that seemed to be in a different kind of ink from the rest of the writing. This was assumed to be the signature of Jacobus Sinapius, a Czech doctor who served as Rudolf II's botanist during the early 17th century. Jacobus's close proximity to Rudolf at the time of the emperor's death does seem to track with his potential ownership of the manuscript. It's possible that Rudolf bequeathed the tome to Jacobus, who then signed his name on the first page. While the historical context indicates that this theory is certainly possible, there's a problem. Voynich accidentally erased the signature when he first conducted chemical tests on the manuscript in the mid-1910s. 
While there are rough photocopies that show the name there, there's no other proof that Jacobus had it. Still, in the utter absence of any real facts about the Voynich manuscript from the 1400s until the 1900s, these sorts of scraps are all we have to go off of. Consider the rough timeline we have thus far. It's claimed that Rudolf II purchased the Voynich manuscript at some point in his life. Voynich proposed that he purchased the book from John D. Rudolf II then bequeaths the manuscript to his botanist, Jacobus Sinapius. Jacobus presumably keeps the manuscript until his death in 1622, meaning someone else likely had it before it came into Marcy's possession in the 1660s. The most likely candidate for that missing time is Czech alchemist Georg Baresh. He likely came into possession of the Voynich manuscript in the mid or late 1630s. We know that Baresh had it because of letters written on his behalf to none other than Athanasius Kircher. These letters indicate that Baresh first proposed the idea of sending the Voynich manuscript to Kircher for him to try and translate. What we don't know is why this process took so long. Baresh died before 1662, likely leaving the manuscript to Marcy. Then Marcy, acting on Baresh's original idea, sent the document to Kircher. After Kircher's death in 1680, the manuscript was likely lost and forgotten among many of the volumes he left behind in the Roman college. It's all plausible, but again, plausibility is not the same thing as confirmation. While this timeline seems to make sense, given who these men were and how they related to one another, there's really nothing else in primary historical sources to confirm any of it. The letter Voynich discovered in the manuscript is the genesis and the proof of this whole theory. There is no record of John Dee ever selling the manuscript to Rudolf II, nor is there a financial notice of the 600 ducat payment Rudolf supposedly shelled out. The correspondence between Georg Baresh and Kircher is the only first-hand proof we have of the manuscript's existence prior to 1912. Beyond that, all we really have to go off of is Marcy's letter, which isn't even proven to be in his handwriting. Voynich never seemed to consider a likely possibility that Marcy's letter wasn't referencing the manuscript in which it was found. When you consider it, the only thing linking the letter to the Voynich manuscript was proximity. It's possible that the message referred to some other tome. This is, of course, impossible to confirm, but the fact that it is possible demands consideration. And it was Voynich's own errors in judgment that led to the erasure of Jacobus's signature, which made the verification of the manuscript's history even more difficult to surmise. Voynich's sin in this case seems to be one of fervor and making leaps in logic about his manuscript in order to accept beliefs that were not fully verified. Much like the connection to Roger Bacon, all these threads and theories end up as little more than speculation on our part and on the part of the scholastic. And there's a bigger question here. 
let's say this timeline is correct. Let's say all of these men owned or at least came into contact with the Voynich manuscript. Not one of these scholars, all of whom were among the brightest minds of their generation, could decode it. How could that be possible? Perhaps there's nothing to decode. Next, we will consider the possibility that the Voynich manuscript is baffling by design because it's a hoax. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Now, back to the story. There are currently two histories of the Voynich Manuscript. This first is the known history that tracks through the 20th century, from Wilfred Voynich's discovery of the tome in 1912 through 1969, when it was donated to Yale Library. The second is the hypothesized history, the one we can only guess at that links the manuscript to historical figures from the 16th and 17th centuries. For all of the attention the Voynich manuscript has garnered since it was first unveiled to the world over 100 years ago, it has never been deciphered. It has never been determined whether the manuscript is written in a kind of code or if it's in a language that was lost to history. We don't know what it says. We don't know why it's encrypted. We don't know who wrote it or why. What we do know is that at some point, some person or group of people had to sit down and write out the entire manuscript. The sheer length of the text, as well as the density of the language, would imply that whoever authored the manuscript had a very serious message that they wanted to encode. And perhaps it's that perception of real effort that leads scholars and historians to keep going back to the manuscript in the hopes of finding meaning. But what if there's nothing to decode? What if the reason no one has cracked the code is because there is literally nothing to crack? From around the time he first started showing the manuscript to his peers in the rare book dealer community, there were skeptics of the impossible-to-read manuscript. Some suspected that Voynich himself had drafted the thing in the hopes of selling it at a high price. Consider the facts. Voynich was a very successful and learned bibliophile who likely knew how much an encoded medieval manuscript written by Roger Bacon would be worth. On the other hand, Voynich was already very wealthy at the time of the manuscript's discovery. At the 1915 exhibition, it was estimated that Voynich's collection alone was worth $8 million. So it's not likely that he was strapped for cash and invented the Voynich manuscript as a part of a scheme to get rich. And given that the manuscript is confirmed to be over 500 years old, it seems unlikely that he had a hand in its creation. 
It's of course possible that Voynich managed to find enough sheets of 500-year-old vellum upon which he very carefully wrote out the manuscript, but that seems highly unlikely. It's hard to find a real motive for Voynich to have written the manuscript, unless, of course, what he really wanted was to create a mystery that we would all be talking about over 100 years later. But just because Voynich likely didn't fabricate the manuscript doesn't necessarily mean it's not a hoax. The evidence for this theory was summarized rather nicely, as many ancient mysteries are, in a History Channel documentary series. On the program Weird or What, hosted by William Shatner, the Voynich manuscript was examined by a number of modern scientists and scholars. Among them was Gordon Rugg, a British professor known for his publications on the Voynich manuscript. Rugg draws attention to a key detail that Voynich and the other codebreakers over the years may have missed. Ask yourself this question. When was the last time you wrote out a full page in ink and didn't make a single mistake? What about 200 pages? Rugg pointed out that across the history of medieval texts, there is always evidence of errors. There are spots that trained eyes can detect, areas where the writer made an error and dabbed out the ink or wrote over with a new letter. But there is not a single spot in the entire Voynich manuscript that features signs of mistakes. Rugg's surmised conclusion is that whoever wrote the Voynich manuscript didn't correct their errors because it didn't matter. The writer knew they were writing gibberish, so there was no reason to stop and check their work. Again, we're met with the question of why someone would do this. What could possibly possess someone to scrawl out over 200 pages in a made-up language? The answer is, of course, money. The European Renaissance was a cultural boom as the nations of Europe rediscovered and advanced the fields of history, literature, art, and science. One key aspect of this culturally rich period was an interest in pre-Christian tomes and artifacts, specifically anything relating to Greek and Roman society. Many a wealthy European during this time period showed off their knowledge by acting as patrons to artists. In addition, they paid extravagant sums to own ancient historical artifacts or writings. Additionally, there was a niche market for encoded or encrypted texts. People liked the idea of possessing forbidden knowledge. All of this is to say that there was demand for an item like the Voynich Manuscript during the European Renaissance. Enough demand that Emperor Rudolf could have shelled out 600 ducats for the thing. But is it truly feasible that one person could sit down and write out a manuscript so dense that even the most advanced computers couldn't decipher it 500 years later? Again, Gordon Rugg has thoughts. It's surprisingly difficult to intentionally write gibberish for a prolonged period of time. In an extended burst of writing, your brain eventually hits a point where you're on autopilot, and you will naturally start repeating letters, words, or phrases. But recall that no such repetition exists in the Voynich Manuscript. One of the biggest challenges that codebreakers have faced 
is finding recognizable patterns upon which to begin ascribing known letters. That would mean that if the Voynich manuscript was an intentionally unreadable hoax, the writer was immensely deliberate in crafting the order of his letters, words, and sentences. Given the length of the manuscript, it would have taken the scribe a brutally long time to craft it. But Rugg has an answer to that mystery as well. He oversaw an experiment to try and prove that an automated system could produce pure, unpatterned gibberish at a fast pace. His method employed an encryption tool known as a Cardin grill. A Cardin grill is made with a square grid and a small metal plate with holes in it. You write out every letter or character in its own cell on the grid. Then you place the metal plate on top of the grid. Only a few letters are visible through the holes. As you move the plate across the grid or rotate it, changing which cells are exposed, it produces a random order of letters. Rugg's researchers transcribed the characters from the Voynich manuscript onto a grid and then used a metal plate to write out sentences and paragraphs in the Voynich script. Under Rugg's method, it's conceivable that the 200-plus page Voynich manuscript could be written in a matter of weeks. Now, Rugg's study has come under scrutiny. Mainly, his devised method of transcribing the manuscript seems like a very conventional way of going about things. It's almost certainly not how the medieval scribe comprised the manuscript. Once again, this proposal is certainly possible, but there is next to nothing to prove that it actually happened this way. So, is the Voynich manuscript really a hoax? With every passing year that doesn't yield a definitive answer, it seems less and less likely that we'll ever get a satisfying outcome to this mystery. And the conclusion that the Voynich manuscript is a hoax, lacking entirely in meaning, isn't satisfactory to many. If it was, then it's unlikely we'd still be talking about it. One sad prevailing likelihood is that the Voynich manuscript is really written in an ancient language. But that language is so old, so lost to time, that there is no chance anyone will ever be able to recover it. Thus, the manuscript will likely never be translated. But the mystery of the Voynich manuscript will continue so long as at least one person thinks they can unlock it. Maybe someday in the future, new technology or understanding about the past will provide that ever-elusive clue to decode the manuscript's secrets. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Unexplained Mysteries, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Richard Rossner.